Blue Pew Bible, it can be found on page 830. Again, the text is Matthew 5, verse 5, found on page 830 in the Blue Pew Bibles. Hear now the word of the Lord from the book of Matthew. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Let's go ahead and bow our heads in prayer this morning. Father, we need you. We ask that you would send your Holy Spirit. Father, we ask that he indeed would uh, impart to us truth, a liberating truth, a truth that will set us free as Jesus has promised. Father, all around us, we, are, uh, we see how we are enslaved, how we on our own cannot change, how we are among a people who uh, cannot change. And we, we ask, we beg you, that you would bless our time. Father, break in, show us who you are. Father, do not be anything and anyone to us except who you really are. Remind us, Father, of your, your holiness. Sweep us away. We ask that you would stand out. Father, take over. Oh, Father, please set us free. This morning we ask it in the mighty, merciful name of Jesus. Amen. Do you ever feel like you just can't win? You do something in life, you're at work, or whatever it might be, you try to do something, I don't know, in a relationship, and it's just the wrong thing. You think, man, I just can't win. And over time, how does that make you feel? The sense of like, you just, you just can't get it right. You just can't win. I don't know about you, but it just makes you just want to give up. Maybe kind of go through the motions or just, just shut down. You realize that everything seems to be against you. You feel like you're, you're just not enough. You don't have what it takes. You feel so inadequate. You think, I, just, I, can't, I can't do this anymore. This whole career thing, this whole marriage thing, this whole parenting thing, I quit. <laughs> I quit. I don't know, or maybe, maybe you feel like you're not making a difference. You try and you try and you try, you try to make a difference, and just nothing ever seems to change. At work, you feel like there's this, maybe you look, work for a large organization, a large company, and you think, man, it's just so set in its ways. It's just, it is what it is. It's this large, monolithic, impersonal thing, and, and it's just no matter. It's why even bother really trying. It's like when you say something, Nobody listens. You ever feel that way? Like you say something like, hey, well, what, if, what if we did this? Or what, if, what about this? And no one seems to hear you. I don't know if you've seen, there's a recent, uh, Ron's going to play it for us, there's a FedEx commercial that came out quite a while ago. But it's, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful demonstration of sometimes you can say something and nobody listens. Ron, I don't know if you can cue that up for us. But it's a very brief, but brilliant, uh, brilliant, brilliantly done uh, commercial by FedEx. You get the scene of a corporate uh, boardroom environment, and this company is in need of money, and they need to cut costs. And we see this scene right here. Go ahead, Ron. We have got to cut costs, people. Ideas. We could open an account on FedEx.com, save 10% on online express shipping. Okay, how about this? We open an account on FedEx.com. We save 10% on online express shipping. You just said the same thing I said, only you did this. No, I did this. 
Mm-hmm. Makes all the difference. Bingo. Yeah, that's good. Right on the nose. That's a great idea. I don't know if you can follow that or not, but you can see how this guy. Oh, ahead, there you go. I don't know if you can see that, but the idea is that this, this guy, he proposes an idea, and, and no one, everyone's waiting for what the boss thinks, right? And the boss proposes the exact same thing, and everyone acclaims this idea. Nobody is listening to us. Do you ever feel that? You feel like almost, it's almost as if you're not even there, and you feel so irrelevant. How does that make you feel over time? Right? It makes you feel like this big. And most of us, I think in some way or another, at different times in our lives, we feel either profoundly inadequate. What am I doing as a father? What am I doing as a mother? What am I doing in this line of work? Or we feel profoundly irrelevant. Sort of as if, you know, like if I were to die tomorrow, I'm not really sure I would be that missed. And we feel those things. We feel inadequate. We feel irrelevant in a way that can feel just crushing. And the question is, what do we do about it? You can't just suddenly wake up one morning and go, ah, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to feel that way anymore. And it's not true only personally. Sometimes we can feel that at, like, collectively at a, cult, at a cultural level. Do you ever feel like the church is losing? Those of you who, who consider yourself a follower of Christ, you think, you know, I look at the church today, I look at the church in our culture, and we're losing, we're not enough. And, you know, sometimes people will speak of the culture war. And I'm not sure that's the best way to maybe frame it. But we wonder if, there's a, if there really is this thing called the culture war. I, I'm not sure that we Christians are, are winning this thing. In fact, it seems like we're losing. The church today just isn't enough. And again, we listen to the news or we read the news online and we believe that our, we may come to this conclusion that our, the church or the culture is in decline. And we're not holding the line. We're not, we're not, we're not winning. We're, we're losing. And everywhere we turn, it seems like it's just one compromise after another. Or perhaps we're not looking at our culture. We look at the church itself. We look at the church with, you know, within, within the walls, and we see the various challenges facing the church, the compromises, the failures in leadership, the, the, the lukewarmth of God's people. We see all these different things, and we just, we just, we just lose hope. We think, wow, we're not enough. And in fact, we may get very angry. We see that compromise in our culture. We see, we see all that, and we can just you know, yell at the TV screen. We get angry, or maybe we just get depressed and think, no, everything's going to hell in a handbasket. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but I can be lying in bed at night. I jump in, it's cold, it's winter, I jump into the covers, and I'm cold, and I want to get warm. I'm kind of sitting there, snuggling, and sort of getting the blanket. And then my mind clicks on. I start thinking about things. I start thinking about the culture, or the church, or being a husband, being a father, my mind starts racing. And literally, my heart starts pumping faster. And before you know it, I'm breaking out in a cold sweat. And body temperature actually rises because I'm just thinking, 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 thinking. I'm not enough, I'm not adequate, I don't know what to do. So discouraged and angry, I can't believe they did this, I can't believe they did that. Who are those people? Do you ever feel like we as Christians, when we, as, when we speak as a church, when we preach, 
when we try to communicate to the world that no one is listening, no one cares, we are irrelevant. Or maybe as a visitor this morning, you're listening online or in person, perhaps you're a skeptic and you think, yeah, that's right, the days of religion are over. Religion, Christianity, it's ethics, it's, it's life perspective, it's so antiquated. So outdated. And the question is, what do we do about that? What do we do about this nagging sense of inadequacy, this sense of irrelevance? Well, this morning, Jesus is going to tell us. He's going to tell us what to do. It's so encouraging. I love this beatitude. Now, I've got a number of things this morning I'm going to confess to you. This, uh, this sermon is, is, this particular sermon is going to have more, more of me in it than usual. And part of me apologizes for that, but part of me is just, it just is what it is. And sadly, this is the truth, sadly, there are times... When your, when your pastor prepares a sermon and I think, wow, does this one person in my church sh- sure need to hear this sermon? Or my congregation as a whole sure needs to hear this. That's the worst sermon. Usually it's a better. It's usually, wow, this is good. My congregation truly needs this in a good way. But sometimes there's part of me that says, oh, this person needs that, etc. But listen, this morning, and I mean this with all sincerity, I wonder in fact i'm real i'm quite confident that if the person if there's a person in the room who needs to hear this message most it's the one who's giving it in fact i think many of you are far better at what jesus is talking about far better at it than i am in fact many of you have been an example to me of living lives of something that Jesus calls meekness. Now, what in the world is that? We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Now, further confession. Again, I told you there'd be a lot of confession this morning. Um, this particular beatitude, it is, it's the one beatitude that I didn't really know what it meant. I, I was gotten to seminary, and I you know, had gone through the beatitudes, I prayed through the beatitudes. I never really knew what it meant. And so... I just sort of blew it off. <laughs> I don't know why I think that's funny. You know, it's just arrogant. So, well, if I don't know what it means, I mean, meek, that's a dumb word. What's meek? Right? And if I don't know what it means, how important could it be? And you know what? It's the one beatitude that would have helped me more, I think, than all the others. That's so typical of the Christian life. You know, I, well, famous is a famous preaching line, and it's, it's this. Either sin will keep you from this book, or this book will keep you from sin. Speaking of the Bible. That is so true. We can go, oh, you know, well, who, who cares what that beatitude is about? If I had known that beatitude 10, 12 years ago when I was going through seminary, I think of all the experiences I've been through since. And I'll explain why that is. But meekness, listen to this, gang. Meekness asks the all-important question, what's at stake in the particular situations of life when we get all heated, we get all frustrated, we all get discouraged? Meekness calls us to ask the question, hey, wait, time out. Whoa, whoa, time out. What's really at stake here? Meekness, listen, meekness is epitomized. I'm going to... Just, uh, you know, my, you know, when you're a preacher's family, you're, you know, usually, usually with permission, I ask my kids for permission to, you know, kind of use this as an illustration. But I want to use this example. Winston often plays chess with me, 
And then this past Christmas, just for fun, we got one of those old Nintendo Wiis and we're, we, we were playing some of the sports games on it just as a way of spending time together as a family. We're all gathering around. And, and, and Winston, when I play him, it's just him and me on, on chess, or when, when he or, or somebody, he's playing with someone else playing Wii, when he realized, when he begins to realize that he's losing, he's totally okay with it. In fact, Sometimes when he sees he's losing, he starts to laugh. <laughs> it is the most beautiful thing. Why? Why? Why does he laugh? Because it's funny. It's a game. What's really at stake here? He has the wherewithal, the, the mind will step outside, you know what, and go, hey, this is a game. In fact, sometimes it's so funny, and this is, this is me as a kid. I, I start laughing as a kid, and i got to go to the bathroom. I mean, literally, it's so funny. You got to stop, time out, hold on, I got to go to the bathroom. It's just so hilarious. The question of what's at stake is like, yeah, the answer, nothing. In fact, it's kind of funny. What if we could have that kind of attitude more toward life? And of course, the pushback is obvious. Hey, Clark, it's not a game. Life's more important than that. There's everything at stake. Haven't you seen the news? Right? I don't know about you, but there are moments I think everything's at stake. See, Winston isn't like his father. He's not self-important. Again, I told you there's going to be a lot about me this morning. I have a lifelong struggle with self-importance. See, self-importance is the opposite of meekness. I can take things so personally. Why? Because I'm so important. And if there's one thing, there are a number of things, like two or three big things, that, that, the ways in which I've contributed to failure, to, to conflict, to loss of intimacy in my marriage, that's one of them. I take things so personal. I'm this master of brooding. How could you do this to me? I'm a master of the pity party. Where's Bruce? Oh, he's over there loudly sipping on self-pity soup. Right? Woe is me, poor me. Poor, I try so hard as a husband. I try so hard as a parent. I try so hard as a pastor. No one appreciates me. Meekness is not needing. Listen to this. Here's one way of defining meekness. Meekness is not needing to seal the deal. Meekness is not needing to be a big deal. Meekness is not needing to seal the deal or to be a big deal, even if you are the real deal. Think about that for a second. See, I want to make a splash. I want to make a difference. In fact, I want to be, I want to be, I want to, I want to be the difference. In the military, we used to say, um, you know, we do more before breakfast than most people do all day. Right? I want to make up in the morning, and I want, before I go to bed, I want the world to be a fundamentally different place. Ah, see what I did. Look at me go. Right? In, 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 uh, in my uh, Old Testament lectures in the seminary, I 
talk about the idea of redemptive history. Redemptive history is this idea that God is the decisive actor in the world. I want to talk a little bit more about that. But that God, whenever God acts, there are these game-changing sort of actions. And, and I do it sort of um, humorously. I try to commu- communicate that idea humorously because within just some of the social media world and along the youth culture today, you'll see this sort of joking way that, that, that people will present a sort of game-changing event. They'll go, dun, dun, dun. You ever heard that before? They go, dun, dun, dun. It's this idea that like, oh, something big has just happened. And I want to wake up every day and do something that makes people go, dun, dun, dun. Right? Like, what, what's up now? See what happened. Meekness is just the opposite. Meekness is not needing to be a big deal. Meekness is quietly serving. And I'm going to describe what that means. Again, so meekness is not needing to seal a deal. It's not needing to be a big deal, even if you really are the real deal. And it's epitomized in the person and ministry of Jesus. To use the words of Eugene Peterson, listen to this. Meekness is, is the ability, meekness is the ability to take a relaxed stance in the face of inadequacy and irrelevance. Meekness can take a relaxed stance in the face of uncertainty, in the face of a culture that seems to be in decline, a church that is compromised. A relaxed stance. Now, this this is not just walking away and not caring anymore. It's not apathy. It's not just meekness can grieve like we just did. But meekness is this ability not to just simply become overcome with anger, frustration, irritation, whether it's at the things in this world or personal offenses. Meekness is take, able to take a relaxed stance. All right. It's a freeing thing. It's an amazing thing. Now listen, how do we get there? What do you, how do we go about it? How do we move toward this idea of meekness? Well, listen to this. Meekness flows... Let me say it this way. Meekness embraces God's sovereignty and our servanthood. Two things. Meekness embraces God's sovereignty, especially in the area of justice. That he's going to act. He sees all of the wickedness. He sees all of the oppression. He sees how messed up things are, and he will do something about it. And believe me, he cares more about it than you and I ever could. He is sovereign, and he will have his way, his way of justice, his way of righteousness. He will prevail. He's got this. And so I can take a relaxed stance. Meekness flows from embracing his sovereignty and embracing our servanthood. And what do I mean by servanthood? See, I, I'm, I'm not a servant. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm this person. I, I think I'm this sort of superhero who has to save the day. See, a servant is just simply someone who says, oh, wait a minute, um, what, am I, what, what, have I been, what have I been asked to do? Well, I've been asked to be a father. I've been asked to be a husband. I've been asked to be a pastor, a neighbor, and faithful servanthood simply asks the question, what does faithfulness look like? 
What does it look like for me in the midst of this chaotic world, in the midst of a church I can't control, in the midst of a marriage I may not be able to control, in the midst of a family, as a parent, I can't control? What does it look like for me to be faithful? Just to get up in the morning and say, look, regardless, I'm not trying to force a certain outcome. I'm not trying to make something happen. I'm just simply called to be faithful in the roles that God has given me. What does it look like to be faithful at work as a student? And that's not necessarily an easy question to answer. It's often an iterative process. It's a process not only iterative, but you actually have to seek counsel from outside. In this particular situation, what does it look like for me as a parent to be faithful? You may need brothers and sisters in the Lord. You may need your pastor or, or a leader in the church to come alongside you and say, hey, what does that look like? And sometimes some of you have. It's wonderful. But when you can clarify what faithfulness looks like and you just focus on that, it can do wonders. You can sleep at night. In fact, we had a sermon a little while back. What was the title of the sermon? It's from Ecclesiastes 5. It said what? The sleep of the servant is sweet. Because like, I'm not going to worry above my pay grade. I'm going to pretend like I'm more important than I am. I'm just a servant. Someone else is going to worry about this. He's the one in charge. I'm not in charge. See, meekness flows from embracing his sovereignty and our servanthood. And I want to just I want to just give an example of that. In fact, if you wonder where sometimes where Jesus gets these things, where where is the rest of this all coming from? Well, sometimes it's a little more difficult. But this is a, this this uh, this uh, beatitude in particular is actually rather easy. If you have, if you want to grab your pew Bible there. You look to turn to the Psalms, you can sort of open the Bible right in half, right in the middle, you'll find this huge book called the Psalms. There are 150 of them. In this one particular Psalm, you'll see that actually Jesus is, is the origin, so to speak, of the Beatitude is actually taken from Psalm 37. Now, I don't, I'm not sure there is a more relevant uh, Psalm for our times, for Christians today. Given the polarized environment we live in, given the, the constant 24-hour news media cycle, this, we, can, we can get so incensed, so frustrated, so irritated. We can do what, what verse 1 of Psalm 37, it's on page 480, if you, if you want to grab your, your pew Bible. What Psalm 37 verse 1 calls fretting. Listen to this. Do not fret because of those are evil. In the Hebrew, the word fret actually means um, sort of a direct or little translation would be do not get hot. Don't get heated up over these things. It's exactly what I mentioned a few days, just a few minutes ago. I'm lying in bed at night and suddenly my, my heartbeat starts pounding, my mind starts racing, and literally my body gets hotter. My body temperature goes up. I start to sweat. And, and I do the very thing that David says here not to bother doing. Do not, listen to this, do not fret because of those who are evil, because of evildoers. And certainly don't be envious of those who do wrong. Verse 2, for like the grass, they, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. And listen, understand, this is coming from David. David knew what, a, what enemies were. He knew what foes were like. He had people after him literally trying to kill him. Verse 3, trust in the Lord. Trust that he is sovereign. And just simply do good. Go about doing the good things that you know you can do. Be a servant. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. 
Verse 4, take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteousness, you observe, make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. And he, can, he, David goes on and he gives this wonderful, wonderful counsel about what it means to, to live in a world where evildoers seem to be, seem to be winning. Look at verse, I want to fast forward here to verse 10. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. Oh, but the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. Now, how, is, how does that happen? How is, he, how is David able to have that sort of meekness, that sort of, you know... That relaxed stance. Well, he tells us in the very next verse, this is so important, verse 12 and 13. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. Isn't that awesome? Did you know that God laughs? Our God laughs. In in the Psalms, he laughs three times. All three times, do you know whom he's laughing at? The wicked. In fact, it's not just the wicked in general. If you turn to the left just real quick, go to Psalm, chapter, Psalm 2, you'll see this. Verse 1, it's on page uh, 463. Why do the nations conspire? Again, this is David. And the people's plot in vain. Why do the nations, why, why do they think they're going to get away with anything? Verse 2, the kings of the earth, the influencers, those who are in seats of authority, those who are the princes, the presidents, the prime ministers, the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, against his Messiah, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. We don't need to submit to God. We're going to do our own thing. Verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. And I think that's the most important thing that you need to hear this morning. In fact, what if you just went home, had a, a three-by-five card, or somehow, some way, just put, God is laughing. Put it on your refrigerator. Whatever it is. I don't know. Whatever you're going to see it regularly, God is laughing. Three times. God is laughing. God, have listen to this. In fact, there's recently, I, I, I can send you, um, well, I can send you some information, actual report on this. There was a study done not too long ago. I want to say it was maybe within the last five or ten years. A study was done. I think there's a correlation between intelligence and enjoying like dark humor, like black humor, you know, like kind of, you know, more of a British sort of wit or an ability to sort of laugh at things that are dark. The more intelligent you are, the more dark your humor gets. And here you've got, you've got God. How intelligent is God, right? The prophet Isaiah says that his understanding is beyond, beyond comprehension. And here he is looking at the evil, evildoers, kings of the earth, plotting and planning. <laughs> what does he do? He's like, are you kidding me? This is laughable. It's laughable. You know, listen, don't get me wrong. I understand, like, there's a time to cry. There's a time to grieve these things, okay? I'm not, not being one-dimensional. But at the end of the day, it's so good. To hear our God laugh at the wicked. If he's laughing, maybe I should, maybe I should kind of laugh too every once in a while. Should enter into that laughter. He's laughing at all this stuff. Why? 
Why? Verse, again, verse 13. For he knows their day is coming. No one is getting away with anything. Do you believe that? And does that not enable you to take this relaxed stance? To be like, you know, maybe I don't need to be winning right now. Maybe I don't need to be adequate. Maybe it's okay that the church isn't all that I would like her to be. I'm not talking about this church. I'm talking about the church, capital C, the church in America, the church around the world. Maybe it's okay that the church struggles and is weak. See, who epitomizes this more than anyone is Jesus. Jesus, as he's taking his final journey to Jerusalem, comes around the corner and he beholds Jerusalem and all its evil, all its compromise, all its corruption, and he weeps over it. We talked about that. He weeps over it. But then he, he doesn't get on a war horse and ride in and kick the tires and light the fires and, you know, just bring down the, the thunder. Right? What does he do? He gets on a colt and a donkey in fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. O Jerusalem, see, behold, your king comes to you meek, meek. Often the English translations say humble. It's the same Greek word, praus. Okay, meek and riding on a donkey. Not a war horse. He doesn't need to be in control. He doesn't need to be a big deal. He realizes he's going to go like a lamb to the slaughter. And it's not easy for him. But he's okay with it. He's there in the garden. Right? As the soldiers come, Peter cuts off the ear of the high priest. Peter, put away your sword. It's okay. Don't you know, listen to this, don't you know that I could call upon 12 legions of angels if I wanted to. Just ask my father. They're like this. See, the angels are agents of judgment. They're agents of divine retribution. Every time they're mentioned in Matthew, that's what angels do. They're agents of retribution. They're come and they're going to just wipe out, wipe everything out. Don't you know that I cannot implement justice right now? But what does he say? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled? Everything is going according to plan. He is sovereign. He knows what he's doing. And I'm here just to be a servant. Peter, will you join me in that? Peter's freaking out. Oh, the, the liberals or the progressives or the, the conservatives, they're winning. Oh, the wrong people are in charge. I don't know who you think the right or wrong people should be in charge of. I don't really, I'm not, I don't, I don't Political power doesn't impress me. I don't care what flavor it is, whatever it is. That's not how the kingdom has come. The kingdom will not come through the right president. The kingdom will come when God's people, in meekness, embrace his sovereignty. He laughs at kings of the earth. The, king, God has the, the, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he guides it wherever he pleases. God can do whatever he wants with whomever he wants in whatever office they are. 
What will happen when we, we embrace his sovereignty, realizing the kings of the earth are just simply puppets, they're pawns in his hand, and I'm free just to be a servant. Let me make just two brief applications. One is, one is immediate, particular, the other is broad, and we'll, we'll go to the table here. The first one, immediate. Perhaps you as a parent, things in parenting hard. You just feel like it's impossible. Nothing makes you feel inadequate and irrelevant or powerless like being a parent. And it's so important as a parent to say, what does faithfulness look like? And I'll, give you, I'll give you an example, I think, of what meekness looks like in parenting. My mom. My mom grew up in a home where she had an older brother who was an incredibly difficult teen. He put, the way my mom says is that he put my, she says, he put my parents through hell. And the whole home life, everything was just turned upside down by his just rebellion, by his uh, insubordination, etc. And um, he lived a very tragic life. He ended up, um, yeah, he ended up dying fairly early. So it's, it's a very sad story. And she, she said, she said, you know, not, it wasn't too long, you know, in her late teens and 20s where she said, she said these, these were just amazingly insightful words. She said, I decided that I would be the best parent I could and then not care. And if, if, if it came down to our kid, not when he began to, th- to think that we weren't on his side, that we weren't in his corner, that we weren't on his team, I would simply show him the door. That's it. She said, I'm going to do what it means to be faithful as a parent, and I'm going to let the rest go. Now, it's, easy, it's easier said than done. Of course that's true. But that's struggling with this idea of what does faithfulness look like? I am going to embrace servanthood as a parent, knowing that I can do all I can do and I'm going to let the rest go. That's what meekness is, a particular example of what meekness looks, looks like. I'm going to embrace his sovereignty and I'm going to embrace my servanthood, asking the question, what does faithfulness look like? Secondly, bigger picture. Let me, let me communicate this by way of example. When I was in the military in the Air Force, there's a particular branch within the Air Force called the AFOSI, the Air Force Office of Special Investigation. And they are the counterintelligence branch of the Air Force. And by counterintelligence, I mean they're the guys who go after the spies. If you can believe it, there are actually people in the US military, Americans who serve, who are actually compromised by foreign intelligence, um, in, in, intelligence uh, agents. So in such a way that they actually begin to feed them information, they begin to work. You're American, you know, a lieutenant officer or an enlisted person who actually begins to feed information to the enemy. And they go after, they go find those people. And what was amazing, I remember when, when, when one of the uh, AFOSI agents came to the academy and was trying to recruit us, we were, we were, I don't know, a group of 20 cadets, we were interested, I was there. And, and he, they actually shared, the lady actually said, you know, we actually know that there are, we have people right now who are doing this very thing. There are actually officers or enlisted persons out there who are feeding, you know, information to the bad guys. And one of the cadets, I mean, he very, uh, you know, kind of the obvious question is like, well, why don't you go arrest them? I mean, right? They're there. And he didn't, he didn't ask it like that, but he said, well, why, why, don't, why don't you guys go do something? And her response was awesome. She said, well, we actually find them very useful. 
we feed them fake information. And we, we sit there and we control the situation. We let the enemy think that they're winning. We let them think that they know what they're doing. That is exactly how God views the wicked of the earth, especially those who are in positions of authority. Why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't he take that person out? Why doesn't he, why doesn't he bring justice? He can do whatever he wants to. But right now, he finds them very useful. They're not getting away with anything. So it's okay. Have a relaxed stance. He's sovereign. I'm going to embrace his sovereignty. I'm going to embrace his servanthood, our, my servanthood. Let's, let's, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much that you laugh at the wicked. It's just so amazing to think that the wicked exist at your permission. And Father, why are we, how are we any different from, from who they are? How are we any less wicked? How are we any less sinful, any less rebellious? It's only because of your grace, your amazing, undeserved grace that you have broken into our lives, that you have called us sons and daughters. And we thank you, Jesus, as we look to your life, how you rode in on that donkey so unimpressively, so irrelevantly. Father, just seeming as though everything was against your son. It seemed as though, what what an anticlimactic way to end his life. A life that seemed to end in such failure. Father, that's so often how we feel. We feel like our lives as parents, as spouses, and our vocations, we feel inadequate, we feel irrelevant. Father, I pray that we would just embrace wholeheartedly, without reservation, every moment of every day, we would embrace your sovereignty hearing your laugh you know, enable us to embrace your servanthood knowing that one day we will hear those wonderful words well done good and faithful servant enter into your master's happiness father we delight that we can come before you at this table well, this table is a table for the inadequate father it's a table for those who are irrelevant to whom the world is forgotten to whom no one listens And Father, we rejoice that you, in your absolute, your unfathomable and infinite love, you you made us for yourself, and when we had fallen into sin, when we had become overwhelmed by by just an evil that we we could not master, you, in your mercy, sent Jesus to share in our human nature, to live and die as one of us. Why, Father? In order to reconcile us to you, Father, how beautiful it is to think that he stretched out his arms upon that cross and offered himself in full obedience to your will as a perfect sacrifice for the entire world, even us. Father, it is his death that we now proclaim, and it is in his glorious name that we pray these things. Amen.